Good morning. This is the word of God. <clears throat> Acts 11, oops, sorry, Acts 10, 9 through 16. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kind of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Amen. Thank you, Renee. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you all. Uh, My name is Aaron. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you. We are in the book of Acts, uh, and we are kind of, uh, this week and next, it's kind of a two-part series that goes together. Uh, So there's some things I'm going to talk about and just touch on briefly, but make sure you... uh, uh, you tune back in next week to kind of for the, the conclusion, the, the two-part season finale, season one finale of Acts before we take a little break for uh, Advent season. Man, I, I'll just say this real quickly. Going through the book of Acts, there's so much in the book of Acts about people taking care of the practical needs of those around them. And as I'm listening to Pastor Kyle just share, like, I, I hope you hear the heart of that. Like, that's, a, that's like an attaboy for all of you guys who have been so incredibly generous. That is not to, you know, toot the horn of Sound City Bible Church, Bible Church and say, aren't we just so amazing? It's to say, you guys have been faithful. You've been modeling the kind of generosity that we see over and over and over again in the book of Acts. And in particular, Acts chapter 10, which I'll preach on next week. Uh, I'm so proud of you guys. I don't think you were quite excited enough uh, for, for that. And I had asked uh, uh, one of our members who finally started hooting and hollering at the end of the nine to stay, but she didn't. And so just next time, more excitement for yourselves, okay? Because that is such cool stuff to hear witnesses from organizations, both Christian and non-Christian, uh, about the way that God's using us to help care for them and support them. And speaking of organizations, we've got a special guest in the house today. Sorry, James, embarrass you. So James Raymond, wife Kaylee here. Uh, James leads an organization called the Almeida Initiative, which is uh, an organization that we have been supporting for years. I didn't expect you to come. You could have texted me that you're going to be here. You like to make a dramatic entrance. Well... I'm going to hand my notes off to you and leave, and you'll, get, you'll be the last time you don't warn me. But no, James has been a friend for about, oh gosh, coming up on 10 years, and their organization exists to help build bridges between Christians and Muslims so that we can have substantive conversations about, uh, well, Jesus Christ and the gospel with them. And so we're really thankful for James, thankful to get to newly step onto the board of that organization. And uh, also of partners, um, you guys should know, you guys know our friend Rabbi Matt, so Rabbi Matt knows that we're going through the book of Acts, and he, he called me. He goes, hey, when are you guys doing Acts like 10 and 11? Because these are like his absolute favorite sections of Scripture, and they've been really gotten wrong over the years in a lot of ways by Christians who miss some of the Jewish context. So Rabbi Matt goes, when are you doing that? And I was like, oh, it's going to be you know, November 15th. He goes, cool, I'll be at your office on Monday. Uh, oh, all right, sounds good. So we had a two-and-a-half-long conversation on Monday, so some cool things that he shared with me, and so I want to give credit where credit's due. But before we do anything else, let's go before the Lord in prayer. I want to share some thoughts with you from this chapter 10. God, we love you. We thank you that 
that though we do at times lean on our own understanding, though we do follow our own ways, God, you are so gracious to pull us back and to draw us back into yourselves. And God, we thank you that one of the primary main ways that you do that is through the scriptures, through your written word. So I ask and I pray, Lord God, you would give our hearts, uh, you would tune our hearts right now to be attentive to your word. God, would you guard my lips and guide my speech as I share these things? I only want to say those things that are in line with the truth of your word. And and Holy Spirit, would you give us soft hearts to trust you, to believe in you, even at times when we don't fully understand what is going on in our lives or going on in the world. Help us to trust you, we pray in Jesus' good name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. So sometimes in life, you have an experience where it happens, you feel something, And then it takes you a few minutes to figure out what in the world just happened. You guys know what I'm talking about? It could be something good, it could be something bad. I think of uh, my oldest daughter is about to turn 16 years old. So pray for me and maybe stay off the roads for a little while. But uh, I remember when we had our first daughter and the, and the, the nurses and the doctors, said, okay, you're free to go home. And they just hand you a living, breathing human being and expect you to be able to go keep it alive and raise it. I'm like, what is happening here. Any of you parents remember that first time feeling like, what? I I just need a minute. We got home and like, I've been here before, but everything feels weird and different, right? Or sometimes it's a bad thing, right? I remember back in February or March, I guess it would have been, we were here in this room gathering for a series of prayer meetings, praying about the Lord merging our, our churches together. And we left the prayer night. I left the prayer night and was driving north here on Larch. And I went to turn left onto 164th at the light. And someone came flying southbound around the light, head-on collision. Now, some of you might remember, I hated that car. So I wasn't all the way brokenhearted about it. But I pull over to the side of the road. I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I do? Did I do something? What's happening? They fled the scene. And they took off. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, that helps me make sense that it probably wasn't my fault when they fled the scene of the accident. But just, you need a minute to think about it. You need a minute when something kind of dramatic like that happens to unpack and to sort through what just took place. Now, at this point in our story, we have reached in the book of Acts the the most dramatic tipping point, the most dramatic turn in the story. And I'm not just talking in the story of the book of Acts. I'm literally talking about in the entire storyline of the Bible, there is something that God promised all the way back to Abraham thousands of years before this moment that is now finally happening. This domino is going to fall. So if you know about the storyline of the Bible, you'll know that in Genesis chapter 11, all of the peoples of the world were scattered at the Tower of Babel. That the peoples of the world did not want to worship and honor the one true God. They wanted to be God and they wanted to follow the other so-called gods, the sons of God, the rebellious sons of God. Deuteronomy 32 makes it explicitly clear that at that moment, God says, fine, you want to worship other gods? You go worship other gods. And he, he disinherited the nations. But Deuteronomy 32 says that there's a one person and one family the family of Abraham, the people of Israel that God chose. And in Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham, he says, listen, Abraham, I'm calling you out from among the nations. I'm choosing you. I'm making a a special promise to you that I'm going to use you to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And through your offspring, all the nations are eventually going to be brought back in to the family of God. 
And if you were a Jewish person, you would have been raised with literally thousands of years, a Jewish person in the first century, thousands of years of family history waiting. When is that moment going to happen? When are the nations going to stream to the light of the Messiah? When, like the Psalms say, will the nations come flooding to Mount Zion to worship the one true God of the Bible? And friends, it's here in Acts chapter 10. And you're going to see that both Peter and this man named Cornelius, who we're going to meet, they just need a minute to sort things out. Just takes a moment. They both respond with such faith in God, beautiful faith in God, but they got to kind of process things. And it it reminds me of a phrase that comes from a a medieval uh, Bible teacher and author, a guy named St. Anselm of Canterbury. And he has this famous quote, just a simple little phrase that says, faith seeking understanding. Faith, where we trust, we believe, we obey, like Peter, like Cornelius in this passage, but we just need a little bit of time to process through, to wrestle it through, to understand what is going on. So that's our big idea for today, is just simply that, faith-seeking understanding. I'll let St. Anselm of Canterbury have our big idea. Let's jump into the passage. I'll show you what we're talking about. Let's actually go back to chapter nine for just a brief moment because you'll remember that over these last few weeks, the, the, the camera of the story, so to speak, has zoomed away from Peter and the apostles. First five chapters, Peter and the apostles, Peter and the apostles, Peter and the apostles. In chapter six, we start to look at a, and seven, we, we are focused on an early church deacon named Stephen. And then in chapter eight, we're focused on a deacon named Philip. And then in chapter nine last week was Pastor Kyle preached. By the way, did Pastor Kyle do a great job last week? Such an awesome job. I got a text from a real encouraging church member said, man, you must be nervous for your job now. Real encouraging. Love it. <laughs> uh, so Acts 9, we looked at Saul of Tarsus, who also is known as Paul. So now here at the end of chapter 9, verse 32, we're going to look back at Peter again because Peter now is going to come center stage. So as Peter was traveling from place to place, he also came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, make your bed. And immediately he got up. Praise God. How many of you believe that Jesus Christ heals? And we pray for healing. We ask for healing. If he does do it, he alone gets the credit, not the person doing the praying. It's only Jesus. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon, that's another town nearby, saw him and turned to the Lord. Wow. Now in Joppa, that's interesting. Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. All you expectant moms, there's your name, right? Dorcas. Life on the playground is going to go really well for her, okay? Now, she was always doing good works and acts of charity. It's interesting that this camera zooms in on two church members, someone who is extremely inactive, and yet the Lord has grace, and someone who's extremely active. But about that time, she became sick and died, and after washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs, and since Lydda was near Joppa, again, we're we're getting to Joppa, keep repeating. Anytime you see repeated words like that, you got to note them. The disciples heard that Peter was there, so they sent two men to him who urged him, don't delay in coming with us. So Peter got right up. He went with them. And when he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs and all the widows approached him and they're weeping and they're showing him the robes and the clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with them. She was doing acts of charity and kindness, generosity, like we just heard our brother Kyle talking about, the church caring for the practical needs of others. 
Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down, prayed, and turning toward the dead body, he said, Tabitha, get up. In the Greek, it's very, very similar to what Jesus says one time to the little girl who he raised. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. And he gave her his hand and helped her stand up. And he called the saints and the widows and presented her alive. So this became known throughout Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Praise God for this miracle, right? And Peter stayed for some time. This is, this is the part here. This miracle lands Peter in Joppa and he's staying with Simon, who's a leather tanner. Couple quick thoughts. Number one, I love this little portrait of Tabitha. Because while we focus on Stephen standing before rulers and Peter preaching to the multitudes, there are far more Tabithas in the community of faith quietly serving and doing acts of charity behind the scenes. And here, she is forever honored in the scriptures, in the word of God, as a portrait of that kind of faithfulness. So that's awesome. The... Joppa thing is really interesting. And as I mentioned, it was four times in this passage, it's like, it's like Luke, who's, who's writing this, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's trying to highlight something for us. He's trying to make us think of something. And I'll explain about that in a little bit. So just note that. It's also really interesting that Simon Peter goes and stays with another Simon who is a tanner, a, a leather tanner. And if you were a leather tanner and a Jewish person, that meant you were always touching dead animals, which meant that you would be quite often perpetually in a state of ritual uncleanness. That's interesting context as we get into chapter 10. I read a verse in the Babylonian Talmud. It's a Jewish set of writings. It says, uh, cursed is anyone who is a leather tanner. So here's Simon Peter staying in his house, unclean animals kind of all around him. Back to Peter. He's in Joppa. Now, Cut, Cornelius, chapter 10. There's a man in Caesarea. That's, a, that's like a Roman city full of Gentiles. The Jewish people didn't like to go there. They didn't think it was a good place to visit. So there in Caesarea is a guy named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, which if any of you musicians are looking for a band name, that's a good one right there. Along with Peter and the Gentiles, that's another good band name. Uh, he, was, he was a devout man. And he feared God. Some translations have it. He was a God-fearer, which is actually a technical term for someone who is a Gentile. They're not a Jewish person, but they come to believe in the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And according to Jewish law, in order for someone to fully convert and become a, you could become a full member of the Jewish nation if you were immersed in water, washed in water, and circumcised. Some people didn't want to take that second step, and so they remained as God-fearers, Gentile people who love, worship the God of Israel, but nevertheless are not considered fully Jewish. But he did many, he says he was a devout man, he feared God, a God-fearer, along with his whole household, and he did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people, and he always, always prayed to God. Getting the portrait of this guy? So about three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius, staring at him in awe. The word there is in Greek is um, phobos, phobia, like fear, terror. He's (laughs) shaking. What is it, Lord? The angel told him, your prayers and your acts of charity have ascended as a memorial offering before God. They're, They're sweet to the Lord. Now, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who's also named Peter. You've got to find this guy. 
he's lodging with another guy named Simon, a tanner, Simon the tanner, whose house is by the sea. Not a lot of explanation, is there? Hey, good job praying. Send some people to Joppa, find Simon Peter. When the angel who spoke this to him had gone, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, a friend, a a co-worker of his who's also a worshiper of God, who was one of those who attended to him. And after explaining everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Doesn't fully understand everything yet, does he? Here they go. Verse 9, the next day, as they were traveling and nearing the city, so they're getting close, Peter went up on, uh, to pray on the roof right around noon. He became hungry and wanted to eat, but while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. He needed tacos. He didn't get tacos. He fell into a taco-induced trance. That's my, that's my personal in- interpretation of this. Now think about this. Okay, he's praying. He's in Joppa. He's in the house of someone who is often ritually unclean, and he has, he's hungry. He's hungry. What's the vision going to be? He sees heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth, and in it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth. Oh no, that's not good. Four-footed animals, sure, reptiles, no, and birds of the sky. It's this mixture God had commanded the Jewish people. There are some animals you are to eat and some that you are not to eat. So he's seeing this vision where it's this mixed thing. A voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, you got to understand something. This is not some like obscure, highly contested passage of scripture for the Jewish people. This is like front and center. Food laws is one of the ways that God distinguished his people Israel from the other nations. It's not like, you know, some really hard to figure out sort of thing. This would be like one of us getting a vision from the Lord where he, where he told us to do something, you know, grossly immoral or something. And Peter's, no, no, Lord, no way. I've never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. Again, a second time, the voice said to him, God, what God has made clean, do not call impure. This happened how many times, church family? Three times. Interesting thought. And suddenly the object was taken up into heaven. Okay. I want to stay focused on our primary theme for today, but I mentioned that next week we're going we're gonna to really dig into these ideas of ritual purity and impurity. And I've got some really, uh, just I think, extremely helpful things to share with you. Let me just briefly say this. It's really important that we understand that ritual purity is not the same thing as moral purity. They're distinct and yet slightly overlapping categories. Sometimes when, when, when you get to that part in your Bible read-through in Leviticus, and then you just skip and go to Philippians because it's easier to read. Shame on you. Uh, the, the book of Leviticus has all these things that just don't make any sense to our modern Western 21st century mindset. All these laws about purity and impurity and clean and unclean. And, 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 and I just want to simply say a couple of things. First of all, this Moral purity has to do with the choices that we make before the Lord, acts of sinfulness. And in the book of Leviticus and other places in the Old Testament, when you read about violations of God's moral purity laws, what needs to happen is a sacrifice. Blood is shed, forgiveness is given, and atonement is made. With ritual purity, it's different. There are no sacrifices to be made for ritual purity. Ritual purity... If, if you violate one of these ritual purity sort of laws, there is a period of quarantine. 
you wash your hands, no mask, but it's, uh, sounds familiar, right? Like, and it has to do with the idea that because ritual purity is more about a reminder of our mortality. It's not morality, it's mortality. All these ritual laws are about don't touch a dead animal. Or if you have leprosy, a skin disease that makes your skin look white and, and flaky like you look like a corpse. Or even a lot of the laws in the book of Leviticus have to do with various bodily emissions. And should we ever be led by the Lord to go through the book of Leviticus, we'll make sure we get our kids' ministry all the way fully staffed for those few weeks because, man, there's some verses you're like, this is in the Bible. Okay. But again, all of those, those, those topics and those emissions and things like that just lead us to be reminded about the cycle and the circle of life and how, how, how we're, we're, we're mortal and, and we can't go into the presence of immortality himself, life himself, God, while still wearing the fragrance of death on ourselves. Jewish food laws are not legalistic rules that God gave to the Jewish people that then the nice, kind Jesus shows up and are all discarded. These are things given by God and all of God's commandments are good. And one of the major ways that this passage gets often misinterpreted is in that kind of, you know, ancient Marcionite heresy, Old Testament God, mean lots of rules, New Testament Jesus shows up, throw all the rules out. That is not what is happening here. And we're going to see it in a minute explicitly in the text. We've got to keep going. Verse 17. While Peter was deeply perplexed about the vision he had seen, about what it might mean, Right away, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions to Simon House, stood at the gate. And they called out, asking if Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. Let me, let me paraphrase that for you. Peter just had his mind fried. Lord, how could you command me to eat something unclean? How could you command me to do something that violates the very scriptures you gave to my forefathers? What in the world could this mean at that very moment? Hey, Peter, there's some Gentiles here. They would like to talk to you. Not coincidence, friends. While Peter was thinking about the vision, the spirit told him, three men are here looking for you. You get up, go downstairs and go with them with no doubts at all because I've sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, here I am. I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason you're here? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearer, God-fearing man uh, who has a good reputation with the whole Jewish nation was divinely directed by a holy angel to call you to his house and to hear a message from you. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. And the next day he got up and set out with them and some of the brothers from Joppa went with him. Don't you love that quick obedience from Peter? Does he have it all figured out yet? By no means does he have enough to know, I got to do what God tells me. Yeah. Now, just, I keep teasing this. The, the Joppa connection. I just got to take him in on this because it's so stinking cool. Joppa is a town. It's right on the sea. And in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, it's only mentioned just a few times, but it's particularly associated with one story. One really unique story. See, God sent all the, is God calling us? That's fine. Uh, <laughs> God sent his prophets to go preach to the people in Jerusalem and Judea and in the northern tribes. But there was one time, one time in the Old Testament where God told a prophet, I actually want you to go talk to Gentiles. And that prophet said, I don't want to. And he ran and he went to a town called Joppa where he got on a ship and he sailed the exact opposite direction of where he was supposed to go. 
And he had a, an experience, a threefold experience. Even though he was told, arise and go, literally the exact same phrase that was said to Peter, arise and go, he was hesitant, but he has this threefold experience where he finally yields to God's will and goes, you guys picking up what I'm laying down? And he, he preaches a sermon and Gentiles believe Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus, this is before Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, the same doggone place where Cornelius is, He asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, but you, he said, who who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, well, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Are you guys like, I love this so much. Simon, whose dad is named Jonah, is in Joppa, is told to go to the Gentiles. He's initially resistant, but after three times of this vision, he says, you know what? I'm going to go. And I believe that in this moment, being a a, a devout Jewish man who is steeped in the storyline of the scriptures, I got to believe that at some point, Peter goes, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I read about what happened to that Jonah when he was sent to the Gentiles. Maybe, I don't know if I want to repeat that same mistake of my forefather. And so instead of Jonah running away and then eventually going and preaching the worst sermon in the history of sermons, 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And everyone, revival breaks out, they all get saved. Simon Peter goes with a heart of eagerness to preach a much better sermon. Gentiles get adopted into the family of God and human history has never been the same since. This is cool stuff, right? I also think that Luke... The inspiration of the Holy Spirit is intentionally drawing out some of these things to draw our attention that God is redoing the Jonah thing and it's going to be a lot better this time. Man, that's good stuff. All right. Verse 24, the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet and worshiped him. (laughs) Okay. I would like to submit that verse as evidence that Cornelius still doesn't quite have everything figured out. But Peter lifted him up and said, hey, stand up. I myself am also just a man. While talking with him, he went in and found a large gathering of people. Peter said to them, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner, but God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. That's why I came without any objection when I was sent for So may I ask why you sent for me? A couple quick two thoughts. Number one, the point of the vision is not about now the Jewish people are to just throw out all the food laws. Peter explicitly says, now I understand what God was showing me is I am not to call any person impure or unclean whom God has now made clean. This is about people, not pork. Make that into a t-shirt or something. I don't know. But he also says this interesting thing. He says, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit with a foreigner. But friends, this was one of the things that Rabbi Matt and I talked about on Monday. There's not a single law in the Old Testament that says anything like that. I dare you, I challenge you, read the whole Old Testament this week. First of all, if you do that, awesome. I don't know, take the week off work. Uh, that's, that's great. But 
There's nothing about that in the Old Testament. The people of Israel were to maintain purity so that they could be a light to the nations, not to build walls within walls within walls to separate from the peoples of the earth. You can't have relationship with, you can't be a light to the nations if you have no relationship with them and you can't have any relationship with them unless you dine with them because that's just how people in this part of the world did it. The point of the vision is God is bringing people together. So may I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius replies, well, four days ago, right at this time at three in the afternoon, I was praying in my house. And just then a man in dazzling clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Therefore, send someone to Joppa. Invite Simon here, who's also named Peter. He's lodging in Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. So immediately, immediately I sent for you and it was good of you to come. So now we are all here in the presence of God to hear everything you have been commanded by the Lord. Like he says, like, we don't know what's going on. I just know I was supposed to get you. So we're ready. We're, we're all ears. It's like, you know, walk up, it's like, okay, uh, tell me about the gospel and go. Like it's that kind of a thing. So instead of preaching a pathetic, begrudging sermon like Jonah, Peter is going to preach an incredibly powerful gospel sermon. Peter begins to speak. Well, now I truly understand. I'm starting to get it. That God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He sent the message to the Israelites, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all. So there you get the doctrine of the Old Testament right there. The whole story of Israel leading up to this, the the peak and the pinnacle in Jesus Christ You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. Now we're getting doctrines of incarnation. We're getting uh, Jesus' sinless life. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did, both in the Judean country and in Jerusalem. There you get the doctrine of the New Testament right there. These apostolic writings where they said, we saw it with our own eyes. We heard him with our own ears. And yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. We have the death of Jesus. There is no good news without first the tragic news that our sin hung Jesus on the cross. But God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses. And we ate with him and we drank with him after he rose from the dead. This was no ghost. This was no hallucination. He really was dead. He really was raised from the dead. Friends, we don't serve a dead religion just founder, but an alive and living savior. Amen. It's the good news of the gospel. This isn't even my sermon. This is Peter's sermon. Those are Peter's cheers right there. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. There's the return of Jesus. He's coming back someday and we will all stand before him. All the prophets testify testify about him that through his name, everyone, no favoritism, Jew, Gentile, like Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. This is the good news of the gospel, friends. That's a lot better sermon than Jonah's. My gosh. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The the circumcised believers, the Jewish men who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles right there as they believed. 
For they heard them speaking in tongues and declaring the greatness of God. And so Peter responded, can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And so he commanded them to be baptized, to be immersed or washed in water in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay for a few days. We've had baptism talked about three weeks in a row. Next Sunday, let's make it four. We're going to baptize some people next Sunday, right? here and right now, if you are someone who has put your faith in Jesus and you've not been immersed in water like these Gentile believers are now doing, then come talk to me. Come fill out the form. Come find Myung or one of the other leaders. We'd love to talk to you about taking that step of obedience and faith in the God who saves. This is awesome. Pause to be continued. Tune in next Sunday. I want to share a few things real quickly here. Back to that phrase from Anselm, the idea of faith that's seeking understanding. Faith that's seeking understanding. It's hard to get a bigger or more dramatic story than this. Peter and and the other apostles, the believers, they're living through this massive turning point, this massive inflection point. And they understand, and Cornelius understands, something huge is going on, but they don't fully understand it. Now, we're not necessarily in our lives facing something quite that dramatic. Amen? But how many of you have ever been in a situation in your life where you're like, something is happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. I just realized what I did. Okay. <laughs> Who is that, Ken? Who's Buffalo, thank you. Buffalo Springfield. Those great American theologians. Buffalo Springfield. Right? You ever been in a situation like, Lord, what is going on in my own heart? I don't understand what's going on. Ever, ever like, God, what is going on in my marriage? What is going on in my job or my finances? Lord, what is going on in my nation? I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't really know what's happening. And so the question for us is, is will we seek to be like Peter and Cornelius, quick to put our faith in Jesus, even when we don't really understand what's going on? Sometimes there's this false dichotomy, this this fight that gets picked, where people will pit faith versus understanding. Now, some people are just by nature a little bit more, um, uh, I don't mean this in a, in a negative way, but just kind of less like intellectual, just maybe a little more feelings, a little bit more emotional based, a little bit more just intuitive. You go with your gut, right? And other people are a little more cerebral, a little more thoughtful, a little more studied, and you want to you think and you want to you know, maybe build a spreadsheet. I got this decision of what's going on. I'm going to try to think through things. And, and, and friends, if, if this story tells us anything or, or we see the pattern of Scripture and tells us anything, that true faith and true understanding, biblical faith, biblical understanding, would never be enemies. We need both. We need both the, man, I feel like, I feel like, we need to be comfortable with language. I feel like God is leading me in a certain way. And we need to be comfortable with language. Like, I need to test that by the scriptures. I need to think about it for a minute. I need to talk to some other godly people in my life. What the problem is, and I've seen both sides of the spectrum in my life, there's something that masquerades as faith that isn't truly faith. God told me, and then it's just, it's, it's, it's feelings, It's pure gut. It's pure intuition. In my lifetime, uh, heard someone say, well, you know, God told me to 
divorce my wife and hook up with somebody who's younger than me. No, he didn't. In my lifetime, I've now actually witnessed firsthand multiple, not just one, but multiple pastors who have behaved sinfully. Leaders came around them to put accountability and process in place and both have said, nope, God told me I don't need to listen to what you're saying. Friends, that is not faith. That is not biblical faith. That is something else masquerading as faith. On the other side of the coin, on the other side of the spectrum, I have heard people faced with a decision, faced with a crisis point, and basically zero prayer. I love you, but sometimes like as a pastor, I'm like, well, have you prayed about that? Oh, no, I haven't. Like, man, what are we doing here? Did you fast? Did you seek the Lord? Well, no, I've got a really nice spreadsheet, though. Jesus is not anti-Excel. But like, if, if everything has to like make sense according to natural wisdom, if everything has to line up according to human wisdom, where's faith? Like if there's never any element of just trust or even, dare I say, risk, is that really true faith? Is that the, is that the portrait of following God? Is that what God says to Abraham? Hey, leave your, leave your land and I'll show you the land. Actually, if you go to uh, tab number three in your Excel spreadsheet, I'll show exactly, exactly where the land is that you're gonna go. Like, is that what God does or does he sometimes ask us to take a step And he'll show us as we go along the way. Now, friends, you need to check your own heart. You might lean one way or the other. I would say speaking kind of broadly for our church, we probably trend more the direction of pragmatism masquerading as understanding. And I would want to encourage us corporately as a church, we need to grow as people of prayer, people of faith, people who are willing to take some steps and and maybe make, you know, Make a, you know, have a little bit of risk, even when we don't fully understand it, trusting that there is no conflict between true biblical faith and true godly understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. We read that during our time of worship and liturgy. So let me ask you this question in closing. Is your faith seeking understanding? For those of you who lean really heavily into the practical and the pragmatic side, maybe I would put it to you this way. Is is faith and trust and obedience where you're wanting to go first? Or do you first go to practical and sort it out and figure it out? That would be my challenge for you. For others of you, maybe you're more on the, the feeling or faith side of things. Who do you have in your life that can help you wrestle through these things? And how could you just slow down and not make rash decisions just based on nothing but your your gut and your intuition? How do we need to grow? Do you, do you truly have faith that seeks understanding? And, and, and for us as individuals and, and for us as a church community, I want to be more like Cornelius and Peter. <laughs> who don't, they don't have it all figured out. Actually, pretty much the entire rest, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, the entire rest of the New Testament is these guys trying to figure it out. <laughs> Seeking understanding. There's a council coming up in Acts chapter 15 where the other apostles are like, what? There's Gentiles? Gentiles believing in Jesus? It's one of my favorite things talking with Rabbi Matt. He's like, yeah, I'm a Jew who follows Jesus. And people today are like, you're a Jew who follows Jesus? Meanwhile, in the New Testament, the exact opposite question. You're a, you're a Gentile who follows Jesus? The whole rest of the New Testament is just trying to sort through the pieces. Faith that is seeking understanding. Here's what we know. Here's what we know. God loves us. He sent his son to die for us. 
He rose again to offer us new life. He calls us to put our faith in him, to obey, even when we don't understand. And if we trust him, even through the ups and the downs, we rejoice in the middle of our hardships. We know that a day is coming when Jesus will return, all things will be made new, and we will rejoice in his presence for all of eternity. That's pretty good stuff. I think that's enough for us to go on for now. And even now, as we come to a time of celebrating the Lord's table, as Pastor Jason leads us in that, and the musicians lead us in a time of worship and singing, I just urge you, bring your heart before the Lord. Does your faith seek understanding? Lord, I ask and I pray as we come to you now around the table, I ask and I pray that you would convict us of where we have not trusted in you, but we've trusted in our own understanding. Lord, you'd give us that, the, the type of attitude like Peter and Cornelius to just trust in you, put, your, put our faith in you, even in those moments where we don't yet have it all figured out. Lord, forgive us for there's pride of expecting that we could have it all figured out. Draw us close to you by the power of your Holy Spirit, even now as we eat and we drink and we celebrate that which we do know, Jesus' broken body and shed blood for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.